and we're live. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here, and today is August 5th. You're with the Virtual City Club Forum. We're talking today with Zach Reed. He is a native of Mount Pleasant and a graduate of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District and Cleveland State University, as well as Golden Gate University in San Francisco. He began his political career working on the campaigns of Governor Richard Celeste and Senator Lee Fisher. In 2000, 20 years ago, Mr. Reed was appointed to Cleveland City Council to represent Ward 2, which includes the Mount Pleasant and Union Miles and Mill, Mill Creek Falls neighborhoods. He served as councilman for 17 years until 2017 when he ran as a nonpartisan candidate for mayor of the city of Cleveland. He currently serves as a statewide minority affairs coordinator under Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose and focuses on bri building bridges with minority voters and business groups from across the state. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank City Club's generous members, sponsors, and donors who support all of our virtual forums. For a full list, please visit cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting our work by making a contribution or becoming a member at cityclub.org. And as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Just text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them into the program. Zach Reed, welcome to the City Club. Good to have you. Oh, it's great to be here, Dan. Fantastic. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. And thank you very much for joining us. Councilman, um, and we still call you Councilman because it was the last elected position that you held. Um, as I noted, the last time City Club members will have seen you on a City Club stage was in 2017 when you were running for mayor. You made it through the um, through the, the primary to a runoff with, uh, with Mayor Jackson. What have you been doing since? You started working for Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose. Tell us about that work. Well, I, I guess the question would be, what have I not been doing, Dan? I've been a busy man. I mean, first of all, I've been doing a lot of videos and trying to reach out to the citizens of the city of Cleveland about the importance of the census. You know, Dan, if we're going to be undercounted, if Cleveland's undercounted, Cleveland will be underfunded. So what I've been trying to do is to reach out to the citizens of the city of Cleveland and say, if you have not completed your census and returned your census, please do that because we need the funding for hospitals and schools and roads and bridges and a variety of different things, social programs here in the city of Cleveland. The other thing I've been doing is uh, a little over a year ago, I had the opportunity to begin work with Ohio Secretary of State, Mr. Frank LaRose, and it's been a fantastic voyage. Uh, I'm the Minority Affairs Coordinator for Ohio Secretary of State, Frank LaRose. I travel throughout the state of Ohio, uh, talking to minority businesses, organizations, and individuals about resources in the state of Ohio that can help them expand and strength, strengthen their businesses. Uh, now, since we got an election coming up on November 3rd, all hands on deck to see that we now move in the direction towards getting people to register to vote, getting people to uh, fill out their absentee ballot applications, and to get food. You know, Dan, we got over 4,000 polling locations throughout the state of Ohio. We need 35,000 poll workers. If we do not get those poll workers, we will not be able to open up all the polling locations. So we're asking anybody and everybody who is eligible to become a poll worker to please contact the local board of elections and become a poll worker. Pretty much what I've been doing. Councilman, uh, you know, since we have, uh, since we're on the topic of the elections and your work with the Secretary of State, I'm going to throw a, a question at you uh, from one of our listeners. You got it in early. Um, what do you think about the mayor's idea of putting ballot drop boxes at secure locations throughout the county? Well, we, we think it's a great idea. We just had a conversation with the Secretary this morning. He thinks it's a great idea. Uh, but the Ohio Revised Code is, is it's murky. It's uh, in the gray area of whether or not the secretary can do it on his own. So what the secretary has done, he sent a letter over to our attorney general, Yost, and we're waiting for a ruling back from our attorney general, attorney general Yost, on whether or not the secretary of state can arbitrarily give authority to the 88 board of elections to be able to put um, those uh, boxes in, uh, in different locations outside of the board of elections. Because right now we do have boxes at the board of elections but people would like to have more because it's going to be more of an absentee ballot type uh election 
So we're just waiting for a ruling from the attorney general of whether or not we can legally do that. But the attorney, but the uh, secretary thinks it, the, the secretary of state thinks it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. And hopefully Yost thinks it's a good idea also and legal. <laughs> well, legal is important too. Um, not just good ideas, good legal ideas are very important. Sir, last Friday, uh, we were speaking with leadership of the Cavs, and they noted that um, they are in conversation with the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections and other elections officials to open up the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse as a large-scale uh, polling location operation. Um, I assume that's a that's just one of many similar efforts across the state? Yeah, because of uh, the pandemic, we've got to find uh, polling locations, one where we can do social distancing, two, where we can ensure that individuals who are coming in are going to be safe and uh, healthy at the same time. And the downtown location was the Old Stone Church. We love the Old Stone Church, been there for centuries, but uh, we cannot hold um, uh, election, not allow that to be a polling location. So thanks to the Cavaliers for stepping up and, and saying, hey, if we can't use the Old Stone Church and you need a location, come right over here to Rocket Mortgage. And that's why I guess we uh, did the renovations there. Great idea. Plenty and of room. To be honest with you, Dan, because of the pandemic, that's going to happen all across the state of Ohio. And that's the reason we're getting out here. And that's what Frank LaRose loves about what he does. He loves to get out there in a proactive approach, not a reactive approach. That's the reason we already know that the vast majority of poll workers are between the ages of 65 to 75. We know that those individuals probably will not be able to come out and be poll workers. And that's the reason we're in, started in July, we're in August, trying to recruit poll workers right now so that we can ensure that all 4,000 polling locations throughout the state of Ohio will be open and will be manned. I assume that if folks are interested in becoming and volunteering and supporting that effort and volunteering to work as poll workers, it's actually not volunteer work, it's paid work on, on election day, um, that they can, uh, they'll find information on your Twitter feed and also on the secretary's Twitter feed. And they can also contact the local board of elections. And the local board of elections. Councilman, um, Councilman Reed, you ran for mayor in 2017. And um, you have been listed on uh, on various published lists of uh, you know potential mayoral candidates. I know next week you're speaking at a a, a um, an invitational kind of event with the Greater Cleveland Partnership. And uh, Brent Larkin mentioned you in his column a few a few weeks back. Um, do you want to be mayor? Well, we're, we're leaning towards running for mayor. It's uh, mm -hmm. whether I want to be mayor or not. That's that. that I can say yes but it's gonna be up to the voters of the city of Cleveland to make the decision if they want me to be mayor. Certainly. Do you, so let's talk about some of the issues that we'll face, uh, we'll face whichever mayor is sworn in, in, uh, in, you know, in the next round in 2022. Uh, 2021 will be, of course, the year of the, the, the year of the race of the campaign. Um, let's start with downtown. Downtown, you're, you've got downtown right behind you. Lovely backdrop, lovely, except if you zoom in anywhere there, it's desolate. And um, the pandemic, that's partly the pandemic, it's partly the protests, um, but to bring downtown back is gonna require more than just another basketball season, another baseball season, right? What's it gonna take? Well, first of all, it's gonna take more residents downtown. And that's why the census is so important so that we can ensure that we get the funding that we need to be able to take care of our neighborhoods. Two is going to take an economic rebirth of people coming together. You know, Dan, I remember as a kid growing up after the default, and we and we elected the citizens of the city, uh, the voters of the city of Cleveland. They elected Mayor Vornovich, and I remember his his words were, "We're going to go and we're going to begin to have a public-private partnership." And I remember that public-private partnership because, first of all, it was a public partnership between then Mayor Vornovich and then Council President George Forbes. And they made an agreement that one would take care of uptown and one would take care of downtown. But they also reached out to the business community. And they said to the business community, if we're going to come out of default, we need to help. So we, we, they enlisted people such as and Henry Meyer. Henry Meyer's uh, the key bank and Carol Hoover of the uh, on the partnership 
and, 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 and they also brought in the unions like Lori Sobs and, and John Ryan. And we all agreed one thing, that we're going to all have to work together if we're going to get out of this default. So we just can't put this on down. We're all going to have together, no matter if you're in West Park or whether you're in Mount Pleasant, whether you're in Glenville, whether you're in Mount We've got to first agree that if we're going to rebuild this city and revitalize the city, we all got to believe that we got to have a thriving downtown. And that thriving downtown means that all of us, no matter who we are, young and old, black and white, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, and gay, and we're all going to come together like we did after the default to revitalize our downtown and to also revitalize our boards and our communities and our neighborhoods. Councilman, uh, calling on everybody to, to come together to help is one thing, but um, do you think that more specific programs might be needed right now? Uh, perhaps like some sort of uh, specific aid for restaurants um, that have virtually gone out of business, many of whom have closed their doors, uh, many of whom can't seem to afford to put glass up to replace the broken windows. Um, what about you know more specific programs? What do you got? There's no if ands or buts about it. That this is, that's why I said that we got to have a public-private partnership. Mm -hmm. Those individuals who you know, like I said, I'm the Minority Affairs Coordinator for the Ohio Secretary of State. So I travel throughout the state of Ohio, talking to entrepreneurs, sitting down with entrepreneurs, and finding out firsthand what do they need. You know, so I understand that entrepreneurs need one thing, and one of the things that they're going to need if we're going to rebuild downtown, they're going to need government help. So there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it from the city level to the state level to the federal level. We're going to have to help those entrepreneurs. We're going to have to help those businesses get back on their feet again. So, yes, I believe that we're going to need those government programs. We're going to need those public programs, but we're not going to be able to do it on their own from a public standpoint. We're clearly going to need the private sector to step up to the plate and do their job. We're going to need the foundations to do their job. So we're that's why I'm saying this has to be a teamwork, man. This can't just be one sector. Yeah, I can tell you, yeah, yeah, from a public sector standpoint, I'm going to do all that I possibly can to ensure that the entrepreneurs and the business people, not only downtown, but in the West Park area, in the Stockyard area, in the Ohio cities and the Tremonts, and in the Glenville areas and the Hump areas, yeah, I'm going to do all that I possibly can to keep those businesses up and going and thriving. So because we need jobs, you know, you know my saying, nothing beats a nothing beats a bullet like a job. So if we're going to reduce the violence in the city of Cleveland. We got to have jobs. But I want I want to be clear: the private, the public sector is not going to be able to do this on its own. We're going to have to go to the private sector, and this is going to have to be a teamwork between the public sector and the private sector. Councilman, we could um, that that one issue about bringing downtown back could take us the entire hour, and we still might not cover the whole thing. I want to get to some other issues as well. Um, the uh, among the many conversations that we have had since George Floyd was murdered is a conversation that some would refer to in shorthand as defunding the police. Others would call it a, would call it uh, reforming the police. Um, how do you see this issue? There's obviously some urgency. We are under still under a consent decree, and the efficacy of that consent decree is debatable. So I, I just want to give you a chance to address that whole set of issues. Well, first of all, we're not defunding the damn police. That's for sure. I'll tell you that right off the bat. You got to have public safety. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You got good cops and you got bad cops and you got cops that don't deserve to be on the force. Not physically, not socially, not psychologically. So the thing we got to do, if we got bad cops, we got to reprimand them, we got to fire them, and in some case, we need to prosecute them. But we also got to go back to the beginning on who are we hiring? You know, who are we hiring? I mean, you look at the situation that with the Tamir Rice, that individual probably should have never been a police officer in the city of Cleveland. You know, you look around the world. Uh, a lot of nations, before you can become a police officer, you got to have a two-year degree. I'm not saying right now that's something we need to do here, but you look at those nations that do have individuals who have a degree that become police officers at age 21, their police officers aren't shooting young black men. So, you know, what we do is you turn 21 and then we give you a gun and you go back out into our wards and our communities 
you probably, you may have not even came across a black man. You may have not come across a young black man and you get yourself in a confrontation. And the first thing you think about is pulling out your gun. So we, first of all, got to go back to the beginning. And that's why I'm saying the thing, instead of saying it's to fund the police, that's better train, that's better recruit, that's better put, that's better, let's put better police officers on the streets. But once, but, but, but again, you know, when you, you, you mentioned the fact that I ran uh, four, three years ago, four years ago, when you think about it, the same thing happened four years ago. We had a president who sent 30 new police officers and gave us funding for 30 new police officers to come to the city of Cleveland to help with the ongoing violence in the city of Cleveland. So now you got a new president that says, I'm going to send 25 new detectives or officers or whatever you want back into the city of Cleveland. What that didn't work four years ago, I don't know why the hell we think it's going to work again. So what we should be doing is saying to the federal government and to the state government, give us the funding. Give us the funding and let's try something new. Because the status quo has not worked. We still got police officers shooting young black men. We still got the distrust between the residents of the city of Cleveland and the, and the safety forces. So let's put the money in, in, in new programs like My Brother's Keepers. You look at Senator, you look at Senator Brown, Sherrod Brown right now. He and Marsha Maccabee over at the Urban League are, work, are working to revive the My Brother's Keepers program under President Barack Obama that takes young black men and show them that you can do, you can do better. And we're going to emphasize and we're going to work with you to do better. You got programs like Fred Ward that does the Interrupters program that puts formerly incarcerated men and women back into these boards, back into these communities that are vital. And say to them, hey, I went to prison for 10 years. I went to prison for 15 years. That's not going to get you anywhere. What's that going to get you is you're going to continue to live in poverty. You're still going to be able not to be able to take care of your family. And you're not going to be able to give back to society. So what we need to be doing is not talking about defunding the police, but better train police, better recruit police, but put money back into the communities of the people in those communities so that we can relieve and build trust between the safety forces and the people in those communities. If you're just joining us and just tuning into this live stream, we're talking with Zach Reed. He is a former councilman uh, representing the Mount Pleasant neighborhood for 17 years. He ran for mayor in 2017, and he is uh, uh, on everybody's list as somebody who's likely to run. <laughs> I don't know yeah. on everybody's list, Dan. Well, on many lists, uh, uh, for those who create such lists of potential mayoral candidates, uh, Zach Reed is certainly on it. Zach, uh, the conversation about defunding the police is often uh, framed as, you know, thinking, thinking about which of the things that police officers are asked to do that other agencies or other people who might be better equipped could be asked to do. For instance, uh, we... Um, you know, you ask you, the kinds of questions you can ask around that are, do we need um, an officer with a bulletproof vest and a gun to uh, deal with a mental health issue or to uh, or to um, respond to a call about a homeless person who is uh, experience, who who is experiencing um, unpleasantness on a pu in, in public? Or do we need to um, do we need to pay police officers overtime to direct traffic? Um, do we, could we have a different force or are there, are there things that we ask police officers to do that other, other agencies, other individuals, other organizations might be better equipped to do and keep the police focused on the 5% of their job that actually involves violent criminal behavior. Um, that's kind of the, the question that when we've had conversations with local uh, leaders and national leaders about the defund the police movement, that's the sort of conversation there. Uh, they're trying to advocate for. Do you see that conversation as just a non-starter? Well, let's first, let's first of all say this. I said it earlier, you've got good cops and you got bad cops. There was just a survey done about the police officers in New York. And as you know, New York City has the largest police force in the entire nation. And they looked up and said that 90% of the that only 10% of the police officers in the largest police force in the, in the nation were bad. That means that 90% of police officers in that police force are good. So 
let's first of all, let's not throw the bad police officers with the good police officers. Let's, let's first of all be clear that we've got good police officers on the streets and they put their lives on the line every single day for people that they don't even know. But to also say that that's why I said to you earlier, I believe that we've got to put more funding into hand, in the hands of neighborhood groups that we are calling on police officers to do everything. And that's why as a council person, not once, not twice, but three times, I brought on an organization here called Cure Violence, who goes, who goes around the entire world and they help de-escalate violence in those communities. I called on them as a council person. If I'm elected mayor, I would, count, I would call on them as mayor because this is, these are the type of groups that need to come into our community. So we don't need police officers doing those things that you talked about. That's why I mentioned Fred Ward. Fred Ward works with the interrupters. They're in our communities right now. The problem is, Dan, we're not getting funding for them. You can't just say to the Cleveland Foundation, we need you to fund the interrupters. Because we've got a, we got fantastic corporations here in the city of Cleveland who are living in these communities, who are living in these neighborhoods that sees the violence in these communities, that sees the effect of violence in our communities. So, yes, I would agree that we've got to do differently with our safety forces, but I'm saying that there are individuals, there are organizations right in our own backyard that are already here that need the funding. And that's why I'm saying it's not a defund the police conversation we need to have. We need to be talking about how do we redirect? How do we come up with new concepts? How do we come up with new approaches to deal with the violence in our communities? How do we come up with new approaches to deal with the distrust in our communities? I'll give you an example, Dan. Let me give you an example. An example would be a few weeks ago, a few months ago, we had a gentleman in my neighborhood who everybody knew. His name was Tony. Tony was a handyman in our community for years. And Tony retired. And every day, Tony would leave from 126 in Kimson, where he lived, to go to the gas station on 125th, and he'd play his numbers. Get a cup of coffee, play his numbers. After he played his numbers, he'd sit on the blue box, the plain dealer blue box, and just watch everybody. And everybody said hi to Tony. One Sunday afternoon, on a bright sunny day, somebody came to a vacant lot shooting. They were just shooting, indiscriminately. Shot Tony. Then went over and shot Tony multiple times. The police came. The police came and asked the question, what happened? The people in the community did not even trust the police to say that person shot. And that person's right over there. You know who did it, Dan? A merchant in the community said, enough is enough. And said, I know I'm going to put my life on, on the line. I know I'm going to put my business on the line. But Mr. Officer, that person right over there that lives in that house right over there shot. And they went across the street and they got it. That's what I'm saying. There has to be a new approach to the way that we deal with the unsafe conditions in our community. And if we believe that we're going to put more police on the street or we're going to defund the police, that these approaches are going to work. They're not. What's going to work is the people in the community have to believe that enough is enough. And therefore, what can we do? I go back to the thing that I said earlier. What can we do working together in a public-private partnership to make our wards, to make our communities, and to make our neighborhoods safer? That's what it's going to take, Dan. Councilman, I want to um, switch gears a little bit. Um, another of the jobs of the mayor is to oversee the schools. Our schools are one of the only districts under mayoral control. Right now, our school district, the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, uh, of which you were a graduate, is um, faced with a serious challenge, how to begin instruction again in the midst of the pandemic while dealing with one of the nation's largest urban digital divides. How would you approach this, finding a solution to this really vexing issue that we've spoken about a number of times here on the City Club? Well, I'm glad you said I was a proud graduate of Cleveland Metropolitan School District, the greatest high school in the history of high schools, John F. Kennedy High School in the Lee Harbor neighborhood. Just want to get that across. Yes, yes. Uh, but I, 
I think we we know we're in the midst of a serious virus, serious pandemic, and new approaches need to be brought to bear, not only in education, not only in public safety, not only in jobs, not only in businesses, but uh, across the, the, the board. So first of all, when we talk about the digital divide, let's talk about that first, since you brought it up. See, my situation with the digital divide is that the digital, when we talk about the internet, we look at the internet as some luxury, that it's something that just, we it's, a, it's an after. What's gotta happen, Dan, we, we, we have, a, we have a, a water department and we have an electric, uh, a CPP. We gotta start treating the internet in the city of Cleveland like a utility. It's a necessity. It's no longer a luxury. It's no little afterthought that if I can pay for it, so first of all, what we've got to do is we've got to put forth a robust program like Abraham Lincoln did to bring in the, 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 the railroads to connect the east to the west, and he brought in the railroads. That's what's got to happen here. So first of all, you got one, you got one ward, you got one community, Ward 13, Old Brook, that right now has this inner free internet. What we got to do is first go first go to Ward 13 and upgrade their internet. But then we've got to expand that internet service from Ward 13 across the entire city. I heard you a few weeks ago have a conversation with Council President uh, Kelly. You know, we own the poll. We know how to do utilities. So if we stop thinking about the internet as just being some luxury or something that we just may or may not need. This pandemic has shown us one thing that this internet is so important. It's not just so important, it is essential and it is necessary. But also, Dan, the other thing I want to talk about with the school district, Dan, you know, we talked about it earlier about jobs. You know, everybody's not going to go to college. We got to come to the realization in this city that everybody's not going to go to college. I went to college, you went to college, a number of people throughout the city of Cleveland went to college. But there are a number of people who are not built to go to college. So we've got to say to ourselves, if we are going to build a workforce for the market, if we truly believe that we're going to reduce violence, reduce poverty by creating new jobs, new economic opportunities, we got to start training our young people with a skill, with a trade. So what I would say is that if we have a vocational school on the west side of the city of Cleveland, which we do in Max Days, we need to have a vocational school on the east side. We might need a vocational school downtown because we've got to convince the young people in this community is that you know not getting an not getting an education that's not even a, that's unacceptable. Let me push back. I just want to push back for a second here. Um, uh, a few years ago, uh, Lee Fisher was running CEOs for Cities. You and I are both friends with Lee Fisher. You used to work for him. Yep. And um, and CEOs for Cities was one of the indicators that they track um, uh, regarding the strength of an urban environment is the college attainment rate. So you I just want to understand, like, are you saying that it's not important that we that we improve our college attainment rate? No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. I'm saying yes, we need to we need to fund college now. We need to fund uh say yes to education. We need to fund every one of those entities and institution that wants to for our young people to go on to higher education. Mm -hmm. But you know what, Dan? Cleveland was built on manufacturing, Cleveland was built on unions. Cleveland was built on the labor unions, and our labor unions, their membership is dwindling every single day. You know, Dan, you know, before we came home, we had a little problem with the computers here and there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to call a plumber if i got a problem with a plumber. Well, I need that plumber to be a skilled plumber. If I have a problem with an electrician, my electricity, I'm going to call an electrician, but I want that electrician to be a skilled electrician. And how do they get that skill? They don't get that skill about sitting around hoping and wishing to become an electrician or a plumber or, or a laborer or a bricklayer. They get that by getting the right training. And what I'm saying is, yes, we need to fund people who want to go to college. We want to fund those institutions of individuals who want to go to college. 
But what I'm also saying is we're missing the boat if we don't fund those programs and bring in schools and bring in training programs for individuals who are not going to go to college. We need those skills as much as we need college-educated individuals. There's no evidence of what's about. We need a lot of smart people around us if we're going to rebuild this city. There's no doubt about it. But if we're going to rebuild this city, we need the electricians. We need the union workers. We need those laborers to help us along the way. And if we're going to do that, we got to recruit them when they're young. Go back and talk to laborers, unions. Go back to talk to the laborers on the streets. I know you do, Dan. They'll tell you. That they 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 start they saw their uncles and they saw their fathers and they saw those individuals. They were the ones who trained them how to become a bricklayer, how to become a laborer, how to become an electrician. And then they taught them that. And then when the opportunity came and they became old enough, they went to the local union hall and they became a union worker. This is going back to my thing, Dan. We're all going to have to do this together in a teamwork approach. So. Yes, we need college-educated people, but yes, we need union people, we need labor unions, we need people working together, because what we've got to have our eye on the prize is that we are trying to rebuild this city. Councilman, we're going to get to questions from our audience in a minute. If you have a question, you should tweet it at the City Club or text it to 330-541-5794. 330-541-5794, you text that number, we'll get your question worked in, tweet it at the City Club, we'll do the same. Uh, before we get to those questions, uh, Councilman, we live, uh, the city of Cleveland um, is one of the poorest cities in the nation. It's one of the most segregated cities in the nation. It is a city with one of the highest infant mortality rates in the nation that disproportionately affects women of color. It's also one a city with lead poisoning rates that are higher than Flint, Michigan, childhood lead poisoning rates. Um, racism has been declared a public health issue in the city of Cleveland by some of your former colleagues on city council and some new folks on city council and uh, by their counterparts at the um, at county council. What does that mean for the next mayor of the city of Cleveland? If you were mayor right now, what would you be doing differently as a result of those declarations? If I was mayor right now, Dan, and this question of poverty, you know what? I, I spent the vast majority of my life here in the city of Cleveland. And there's one thing I remember that if I was mayor that I would work as hard as I possibly could to change, Dan, was getting us off this poverty, this poverty list of being in the top 10 every single year. Every single year since I was a kid growing up, when the statistics came out on the poverty, the poorest cities in the nation, Cleveland continues to be on that list. And, and, and when people, you know, we talk about poverty and people say, well, that's just people being poor. Go back and look at the definition of poverty. It is extreme poorness. It's not just being poor. And what poverty does, Dan, it sucks hopelessness out of a person. They wake, up every, they wake up every day not knowing if they're going to be able to find a job. They wake up every day not wondering whether or not, wondering whether or not they're going to be able to take care of their families. They're going to wonder every day whether or not they can keep a roof over their heads. So the first thing I would do as mayor of the city of Cleveland, I would hire a poverty czar. You think about it, Dan. We got a water department. We got a housing department. We've got, we've got um, uh, planning departments. Why don't we have a department down there? of the of, with a czar that oversees this poverty problem because then you know and i know as long as this poverty exists in our community we were just voted the second um, no, the number one stressful city in the nation and what was one of the criteria not one of them the second criteria the poverty but yet we walk around every single year and we read that statistic then 50% of our children in the city of Cleveland live in poverty. So why is it that someone is not down at 601 Lakeside every single day saying this is what we're going to do to, to, to reduce the poverty in the city of Cleveland? When you bring forth that budget, you know, when you talk about a budget, the budget that you bring forth, the $1.2 billion budget in the city of Cleveland, when you bring 
work that budget, that's your intentions. So why is it that you don't have a poverty czar down there looking at the budget of economic development and saying, okay, if I give you this money, how is this going to affect me reducing this poverty rate? You got to have a goal. You look down there and say, if I give you this money in planning, I give you this money in the health department, I give you this money in the safety department, how is this going to help us reduce the level of poverty in this city? Because Dan, I would tell you, it is not one of the problems that exists in the city of Cleveland. Dan, it is the number one problem existing in our city. It takes, it hurts us when it comes to education. Poverty hurts us when it comes to the violence in the city of Cleveland. Poverty hurts us when it comes to the housing in the city. So Dan, I would first bring forth the Zoff and put them right at City Hall, might be right outside my door. Because every day I want them to tell me what are we doing to get off of that damn list? I don't want to be on that list anymore. I don't want to be the poorest city in the nation. I don't want to be one of the poorest cities in the nation. And I'm leaving it up to you because it goes back to transparency and accountability. Transparency and accountability. Everybody in my administration needs to be held accountable. And I'm going to hold that 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 that, that, that czar, the poverty czar, accountable for getting Cleveland off of that list. What about all the other, what about the other issues I mentioned? The lead poisoning. Lead poisoning was an issue in the city of Cleveland since before you were city council member. And it's been, uh, and our lead poisoning rate has not appreciably gone down in those two decades, the 2000s, the 2010s. And we may be beginning to, we may be beginning to, to get some traction on it. It's a major issue. The issue with infant mortality is a major issue. But once again, Dan, it comes down to whether it's lead, whether it's the digital divide, whether it's infant mortality, whether it's violence in the city of Cleveland. It comes down to getting the job done. In the city of Cleveland, for far too long, all we do is talk about it. All we do is talk about it. If we're going to do something, you know, when I, I, I moved to Cleveland from San Francisco, California, and I remember working for Mayor Willie Brown, when we when we went into public housing, and one of the, and I would always say this, and Joe Superman, former councilman Joe Superman, he was the um, he was the chairman of the health committee, and he remembers me vividly saying, "I don't understand why we are not putting more pressure on corporate Cleveland and on the federal government to do something about land." The same holds true with the other with the infant mortality. What I'm saying, Dan, is we've got to stop talking about these issues. We've got to put smart people in a room. And we've got to understand. It goes back to what John F. Kennedy said that night after he got the, the, the individual into the uh, uh, Alabama University. He said this is a moral issue. Do we honestly believe that young kids, mostly black kids, are not getting a good education because they're in homes that are filled with lead? Don't we believe this is a moral issue when we see young black babies dying at an alarming rate compared to white babies? Do we not think it's a moral issue when we know that now because of the pandemic, we've got to have young kids learning from home, but yet they don't have internet access? Don't we understand that that this year, as you and I are talking right here, 95 individuals so far have died in the city of Cleveland. We're on our night, we're going on our ninth consecutive year of 100 homicides in the city of Cleveland. The vast majority of young black men. Don't we believe that is a moral issue that we need to reduce that? See, when you just think about these are just being statistic, you, you brought out, you, we could talk about the statistics of lead, but what's the harmful effects of lead? We can talk about infant mortality, but what's the harmful effects? But when we talk about the violence in the city of Cleveland, 95 young people, you know, uh, it was it was it was Bobby Kennedy. I looked at one of your old uh, one of your old uh, videos from the city club. Bobby Kennedy came and spoke to the city club right after Martin Luther King, the day after Martin Luther King died and got shot and got assassinated. You know what Martin Luther King, you know what Bobby Kennedy said at the city club? He said, he said, mindless menace of violence. That's what he said. 
the mindless menace of violence continues. So when we think about what you just laid out as only statistics and not look behind the statistics, these are babies. These are young men. These are people that can go on to be lawyers and doctors. They can go on to be preachers. They can go on to be teachers or husbands or wives. So this is the reason that we can we can't just sit around and keep talking about these issues, Dan. We've got to put our heads down every single day and say these are the things that are holding the city of Cleveland back for going to the next level, and we're going to solve those problems. We are going to solve those problems. Okay, let's get to some questions from our viewers. Again, you can tweet your question at the City Club or text it to 330-541-5794, and we'll work it into the program. Uh, Zach, what specific steps are being taken by the Secretary of State's office to ensure there will be no voter suppression in Ohio? Oh, the Secretary every day works on no voter suppression in the state of Ohio. The Secretary of State has, was just over at the Senate. He was, uh, he was working with the, trying to convince the senators that in September, when every all 7.7 million registered voters here in the state of Ohio will receive an absentee ballot to vote early, he was fighting to say, hey, why don't we put a, a self-addressed envelope in that application so that they won't have to go find a, a stamp to, to be able to return that absentee ballot. It's a secretary who fought very hard to ensure, because as you know, we got four ways to vote in the state of Ohio. We've got early voting, we got three ways. We got early voting, we've got uh, vote by mail, and vote, by, vote in person. And also, the secretary fought for souls to the polls. So you think about this secretary, Secretary of State LaRose, who I'm fortunate to be able to work for and work with, has ensured that he has said the ballot box should be open to everyone. We just had John Lewis, who just, we just buried John Lewis a week ago. And he talked about the importance of the, the right to vote. Martin Luther King came to Cleveland several times. I talked to Reverend Kavanaugh on more than one occasion about Martin Luther King coming to Cleveland and working for the right to vote. You know, he came here right before uh, Carl B. Stokes became mayor of the city of Cleveland to get people registered to vote. Frank LaRose believes in individuals having the right to vote. So I know that, that, that people are putting things out there that are saying that Frank LaRose is trying to suppress the vote. I can tell you that is not true. I would not work for Frank LaRose if he was working to do something of that magnitude. He is trying to open up, he is, he is doing novel things that, that I don't remember any Secretary of State doing. And as his Minority Affairs Coordinator, I'm gonna keep pushing them. I'll give you an example to your person. Yesterday I found out, this is, these, are the, these are the things that are quirky in the, city, in the state of Ohio. As you know, if you've done your time you went to prison and you've done your time, you come out as a felon, you can still vote in the state of Ohio. Well, you heard me saying earlier that we need 35,000 poll workers. Do you know under state law that you as a felon can vote, but you can't be a poll worker? As soon as I saw that, you know what I did? I picked up the phone and called Secretary of State Frank LaRose. And I said, Mr. Secretary, we got to do something about this. And he said to me, Zach, we are trying. I, I understand that. And I think it's wrong that an individual who has the right as a felon to vote can't work as a poll worker. This is what he said to me. So in this case, maybe previous Secretary of States have done that. This Secretary of State is trying to open up the ballot box to ensure that any and everybody who wants to vote early, at home, at their, in their car, going to the polling location, we'll have that, and that's why we're trying to do it. And we, we, we want it to be safe because we're in the middle of a pandemic and we want it to be safe. Councilman Reed, uh, another question from our audience. Do you believe that black people are over-policed, which has resulted in the prevalent violence against black people by police? 
If so, why have you and numerous other councilmen frequently advocated for more police? Wouldn't an increased police presence result in even more arrests and violence by police against black people? Well, I would say, if you remember that in the last election, I said that we need to hire 400 new police officers. I don't believe that today. Why is that? Because, I, because the status quo clearly has not worked. That putting more police, isn't it the most unbelievable thing? The black community has more police. The black community has uh, is over-policed. You've got more police that are overly policed in the black community, yet it's still the most violent community in the city of Cleveland and around the nation. So that, that approach is not working. And that is the reason that I've said it. If, I'm a, if I had a conversation with Donald Trump, I would say to President Trump, I said, Mr. President, instead of giving us more money and, and bringing us 25 new detectives, give us that money. Give us the flexibility to spend that money in our communities, rebuilding our communities with individuals who live in those communities who, who would help us identify the, the bad people in the community try to convince those bad people in the community that you got to stop doing that. And we're going to give you a, a, a chance to do that. That's why I talked about the cure violence approach. Look at the cure violence approach in New York. They went to the largest housing development in the country. Six blocks, 95 buildings. Just imagine it. Six blocks, 95 buildings. They went an entire year without one person being shot. Not just not being killed, not being shot. Why? Because they put the people from the public housing development into that housing development to say to those individuals, don't, don't, if you're gonna carry don't, don't, if you're gonna carry the gun, don't use it. We're gonna resolve this. So yes, I made a mistake in saying 400 new police officers last time. We're not gonna be looking at 400 new police officers this time. We are gonna have a well-equipped, well-trained police force, but we're gonna have individuals in our community, in our neighborhood who know the community best. Who knows the community best than the people in the community? Who, know, who knows what a bad actors are than the people in the community? And I gave you the example earlier about not having trust. If I don't get trust back between the safety forces and the people in that community, Killers like the one who killed Tony, they're going to be able to go back out there and do the same thing. You think about it. You know, Anthony Sowell. Anthony Sowell didn't stop until Anthony Sowell got caught. That's what killers do. That's what, that's what criminals do. That's what bank robbers do. They keep going until they get caught. So what we need to do is to, we need to invest back into our communities, back into our neighborhoods. You started talking about downtown and the revitalization of downtown, and that's important. We've got to ensure that downtown is safe. We got to make sure that downtown is active. We got to ensure that downtown has individuals that want to move down here and they feel safe and they feel like they, that this is a neighborhood. But we got other communities out in East and out in the city of Cleveland that are just that are no different than a war zone. That are no different than a war zone. As I said to you earlier, 95 people have already been killed in the city of Cleveland. The vast majority of them don't live downtown. They live in these wards and they live in these communities and they live in these neighborhoods. Those people, Ms. Brown, Mr. Williams, Ms. Smith, they deserve to live in a community free of this violence, free of these criminals that, that, that prey on them. And it is our job to, to find new approaches not these old, stale approaches of yesterday of putting more police in our community, but new approaches, giving funding to organizations that, like Fred Ward, giving money to the, my brother's keepers, giving money to, 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 to neighborhood groups and CDCs in our community, and say to them, that's why I, we haven't talked about it much, but that's why the transparency has to be in the police force. You know, I heard one of the council people the other day say, you know, I, I, I can't get any stats. I can't get any statistics from the police. I was a councilman for 17 years down at 601 Lakeside. I didn't have a problem getting statistics. 
that's the reason I was able to articulate what police officers were up against in these communities and in these neighborhoods. They got a they got a very tough job. Besides teachers, besides teachers, police officers probably have the hardest job in our nation. But what do we do? But what do we do? I say that we should let the people in that community see the statistics in this community. Let's be transparent when on our safety forces. And that's the way we got to get buy-in. So yes, I'm not going to put more police in these neighborhoods. I'm going to put more community community people in these communities. I'm going to empower the community people in their neighborhoods so that they can assist the safety forces, so they can assist Zach Reed and, and ensuring that our neighborhoods are going to be safe again. More questions, Councilman, from our audience. If you want to text your question in, 330-541-5794 is the number right there on the screen. If you are on Twitter, tweet it at the City Club and we'll work it in. It's a pretty simple question. Will you provide a different style of leadership than Mayor Frank G. Jackson? And if so, please define. Well, I think the, the first thing that, I'm, that I would do, I would say you right now, if I was mayor of the City of Cleveland right now, Dan, let me tell you what I would do. I would probably be on my second or third time going through the city, doing town hall meetings, because I'm going to have monthly town hall meetings in different neighborhoods throughout the entire city of Cleveland. I'm going to have walk-in talks. Walk-in talks where they're going to be scheduled walk-in talks, but sometimes they're going to be impromptu walk-in talks. I'm going to be riding down the street. I'm going to say to my driver, hey, I want to go over there and talk to Ms. Brown that's sitting on her porch. You know, I want to go talk to those young men over there that are playing soccer. I want to go over there and see those young people and ask them firsthand, you know, what do you need? The other thing is that I'm going to open up City Hall on Saturday. I'm going to open up City Hall on Saturday to say to any resident, with or without a schedule, come on down and talk to me. You know, Dan, you know this because we know about big CEOs. If a big CEO in the city of Cleveland said they want to see the mayor and they need to see the mayor with or without uh, an appointment, they would have the ability to go see the mayor. Why can't Ms. Smith come see the mayor in his office with or without a, a, an appointment on Saturday? Why is it that Mr. Williams, who's got a problem with a street like this, been out for six months? Why can't he come see the mayor? Why can't, you know, the, the, young, the young child that's tired, that's tired of hearing gunshots every single night, why can't they come see the mayor in the mayor's office on a Saturday and listen to them firsthand, talk to them firsthand? Because, Dan, you know, I, I use the analogy. This is the analogy I use. I use the restaurant analogy. When you go into a restaurant, you go in and they hand you a menu, right? When they hand you that menu, the first thing they say to you is, what would you like? What would you like? What we do, what these politicians do nowadays in our community, they come in and tell you what you want. They come in and tell you what they're going to do. And then what happens after you order from that, that, that restaurant, from that waiter, they come back and ask you, how was your meal? Is there anything else you like? We don't do that. The only time we basically come out and ask you what you, what you need or what you like is during the time we get $20 million every year in federal block grant money. And then by law, because of the federal government, you have to go back out to the community and talk to the people in the community. So we do the little dog and pony show, go back out there and talk to the people in West Park and do the, and go talk to them in, in Stockyards and Old Brooklyn and Glenville. And then we go back down to City Hall and do what the hell we want to do. We got to put in a different approach. And that approach is that, that the mayor has to be more transit, I mean, transcendent, and it's got to be more accessible. That's what's got to happen. Councilman, it sounds with this customer service analogy that you're making, it sounds like you are suggesting that all of City Hall needs a reform. Oh, we need big time reform. I mean, we got to become a smart city. When you talk about the fact that we got to become a smart city, Dan, and you and I talked about this uh, earlier this week, you know, or last week, City Hall has got to be overhauled. 
I mean, you think about the city of Cleveland. I, 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 when I tell you, when I tell you, we got to have a smart city approach. Let me just read to you definition of a smart city. A smart city is a municipality that uses information and communication technology to increase operational efficiency, share information with the public, and improve both the quality of government service and citizen welfare. That's a smart city. That's not a smart city hall down there. If you look at the fact that, you know, that I'll give an example. The example I use, and I, and I use this example with you. As we said, I work for the Secretary of State, Mr. Frank LaRose. I travel the state of Ohio. I go to Cincinnati. I go to Columbus. I go to Toledo. I park my car at a parking meter. I jump out. I have no coins. I don't need any coins. I got a credit card. I take my credit card and I put it in a parking meter and I go into my, my meeting. Five minutes, five minutes before that I am going to, yeah, I got to put my computer up right quick. Sorry about that, bro. It's like the phone call when it went off at the meeting. Oh, you the debate when you were like, oh, I'm accessible. Oh, my phone rang. So you think about it. So when, when I'm in that meeting and about five minutes before my meter is about to expire, I get a notification on my phone. So I take my phone and I tap in that I need 30 more minutes. You know what happens in the city of Cleveland, Dan? I got to first of all find some coins. In the middle of a pandemic where we've got a coin shortage, then if I have coins and I'm in that very important meeting and I got to run, I got to then run out to the meter before the meter me gets there and put money in that, in that, in that meter. That's not a smart city. And that's what's happening down in 601 Lakeside. We are not using technology. We are not using the advancements of the 21st century. And we are going, we are now in 2020. We've got to put together a plan for the next 10 years that is going to say, you know, I tell people this all the time. You know, I, I love LeBron James. I love LeBron James. I don't think he's the greatest player of all time. I think Al, uh, 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 Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the greatest player of all time, but that's another conversation, okay? But I love LeBron. And what would LeBron always say to his players? He, he, he knew, if I could have a conversation with LeBron, he'd probably say, you know what? I knew I was going to make the playoffs. But making the playoff wasn't good enough. I'm trying to win a championship. So once I made the playoff, what did LeBron always tell his players, his teammates? We got to take it to the next level. In 2020, in 2021 and, and beyond, for the next 10 years, we've got to say to the citizens of the city of Cleveland, we got to say to the corporate community, we got to say to the young child, we got to say to the single parent that I was like, a, like I, who I was growing up, who I was raised with, mm -hmm. that we got to take this to the next level. And if you have a city hall that you can't use a credit card or you can't do something online or you got to put money into a parking meter in 2020, then you're not trying to get to the next level. And I'm saying, I'm trying to take this city to the next level. I'm trying to win a championship. That's what LeBron said. When I'm coming back to Cleveland, I'm coming back to Cleveland to win a championship. I don't want to be, but you know, when I think about the fact that, you know, that I've got all these other mayors around the state of Ohio that are going and lobbying and on my behalf, on the city of Cleveland's behalf, I don't need them lobbying on my behalf. The city of Cleveland's mayor, besides the governor of the state of Ohio, Dan, is the most powerful elected official in the state of Ohio. So I don't need some high-priced, high-class lobbyists to go to Washington, D.C. to convince those people in Washington, D.C. that I need resources to come back into my city to help the people in these wards and these communities. I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. I don't need some high-priced lobbyist to go to Columbus and tell me and, to, and, and try to convince those representatives and the governor and the, and, the, and the state senators that I need funding back here for roads and bridges and for education. I'm going to go to Columbus because I need them to understand the importance of this. And that's what's got to happen at 601 Lakeside. These old, stale ideals 
of yesterday, they've got to be gone. And we've got to look 10 years from now and say, what do we want Cleveland to look like 10 years from now? And we clearly don't want to be putting coins in a parking meter 10 years from now. Councilman Zach Reed, you can find him on Twitter at Zach Reed 12. And uh, I want to thank you, Councilman, former Councilman, currently working in the Secretary of State's office as a statewide minority affairs coordinator, advocating for ballot access and uh, voter registration and voter engagement across the state. Zach, thanks so much for your time today. And I want to thank your generous sponsors. Without them, we wouldn't be doing this, Dan. I want to thank you very much and thank the City Club for this fantastic opportunity. God bless you. God bless America. God bless you too. Thanks, Zach. And thanks for leading me into our recognition of our sponsors, which include Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gund Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, as well as PNC, along with many more generous member sponsors and donors listed on our website. You can find them at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting our work when you visit us online at cityclub.org and become a member, make a contribution or just you know check everything out, email us some ideas that you might have for other forums we should do while we're doing all these virtual forums. I'm Dan Mulder, please stay strong, please stay healthy, please wash your hands, please wear a mask, please keep your social distance as appropriate and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is adjourned.